Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Owen Powell of the band Catatonia. It's a fantastic chat uh, with Owen. He goes into some lovely detail about the band's formative years, his involvement with songwriting for the band, and what it was like touring and recording. We also talk a lot about his other musical projects that he's been involved with and his new material uh, under the pseudonym Don Yaya, which is amazing stuff. And I'm going to put some links to his music in the show notes. Please check that out because it's fantastic. As always, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways that you can support this podcast. But in the meantime, here's Owen. Welcome to the podcast, Owen Powell. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Chris. Very good indeed. Whereabouts in in the world are you right now? Uh, I'm in deepest, darkest West Wales, a very rural area, uh, north end of Carmarthenshire, not far from the border with Pembrokeshire. It's very dark and it's very quiet here uh, and the dog is asleep, which is good news. (laughs) Good sign. Yeah, always a good sign. Um, I, I always ask it these sort of uh, at the beginning of the podcast episodes, and it's probably getting very repetitive. Actually, I know it's getting very repetitive about you know COVID and lockdown and things and how it's affected you. But you've managed to be extremely productive, haven't you, in the kind of last eighteen to twenty months or so? Yeah, um, I mean that's the thing with technology nowadays. I mean, I've got a, I, I, I would hesitate to call it a studio in my house. It's actually a tiny little room, and I've got sort of my Mac and my recording equipment and my guitars. So I've, I've managed to carry on working, really, which has been great. Um, contributed to an album for Mark Roberts, the other guitar player in Catatonia, who's got an ongoing project called Mister. So he's now on his fourth album of that. Okay. So we, we made all of that by um, just bouncing files back and forward over the internet. So it's the first time I've, I've, I've made an album like that. And it's actually quite enjoyable. You sort of, you get a file with the bits that he's done and the bits that other people have done. Paul from Catatonia has been contributing as well. And Oshan Gwyneth, who plays um, Keys and Griff Reese's band. And um, yeah, so he's, we've, we've done that album. It's a, a Welsh language album called Virus, which means virus. And um in the time that Mark was waiting to release it, he's gone and recorded another one as well. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> very quickly, yeah. Have you found sort of then this situation has opened up other avenues that, you know, you may well have not have scoffed at before, and then as you think, actually, this is actually quite an efficient way of working. It's, it's a really efficient way of working. Uh, it's one that more and more people are doing, particularly songwriters and producers. Mm. Um, I can see it being a lot more difficult for bands because obviously part of the joy and part of the excitement and part of the purpose of being in in a band is that you've got a group of people in a room and and obviously the energy that 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 gives to songwriting, to recording, to playing live can't be replicated online. However, for the producers, songwriters, engineers and things, it's, it's actually quite a good way of working. You can download the files, wait until you've got, you know, a quiet couple of hours, have time to review things and um i it's, it's funny because of course every musician will say oh yeah i love working this way it's great you know and be independent but you know the, the the thrill of being in a recording studio doing things that way is 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 irreplaceable really yeah bouncing off each other and coming up with new ideas in the room is pretty priceless isn't it 
It is, and that's, you know, th th that's basically what gets most people into bands in the first place. You know, you you learn an instrument when you're, you know, in your teenage years, and most people, the first thing you want to do is be in a band, and, and that moment where you first set foot, I don't know, you usually rehearse, first of all, in somebody's bedroom, yeah, and then you, uh, you, you gravitate to the lounge of somebody's house when you find a drummer, then the neighbours complain, and you have to start looking for rehearsal rooms. But, yeah, that's part of the thrill of making music, is especially, you know, bands, ensembles, things like that, is... You know, it's a really natural way of performing music. It's very enjoyable. You know, I've made, I've made some of my closest friends that I've ever had through music, and and you know, the internet will never replace that. Before we get onto sort of your your sort of pers uh, solo album that you've released and all solo material that's coming out, it, whilst mm. you're on the subject of going back, I mean, how did it all start for you? Did you always have music in the family, or was there, were you quite different from you know other siblings or, or parents? No, there was, there was, you know, mum and dad loved music. Um, my dad was really into the Beatles, the Stones, Jimi Hendrix. And my mum was really into sort of all the Motown stuff, Bob Marley, particularly um, Stevie Wonder. She's a massive Stevie Wonder fan. But no, there was, there was no re real musicality in the family. The one thing I do remember is, is that my mum always said that I was always obsessed with the radio and I could sing every song in the top 40, more or less, and knew all of the words. And she always used to say, oh, it's a shame you can't learn maths the way that you learn <laughs> songs in the top 40. Yeah. But, you know, ev everything has its purpose. There's a reason for everything. And, um, yeah, I was pretty obsessed with pop music from, like, five or six, I think. Yeah. And, and picking up the guitar, what, what kind of, what was the instigator there? Um, I stole a guitar from my uncle, is, is the truth of it. <laughs> There was, a, there was a guitar lying around in my grandmother's house and well, I didn't steal it, I borrowed it. And of course, I didn't know how to tune it. So I spent about two years just making a racket with it. And then and then when somebody told me that there was actually a way to tune a guitar, you know, the standard tune in the ADGB, uh, I was a bit disappointed because I'd, I'd spent two years learning how to play songs without that and I had to relearn everything. But, but from then on, from then on, that's really all I did. I mean, between the age of like 14 and 20, that's all I did was play guitar. I played guitar in my room. I played guitar all over the house. I used to lie in the dark playing guitar. And my mum used to go, you know, why don't you, why don't you go down the pub with your friends? Like, I'm pretty happy playing the guitar, actually. That was really all I did. It kept, it kept me a lot, a lot of trouble. Did you have any sort of guitar heroes? Who would have been sort of the influencers there? Sort of early teens, sort of pre pre early days of indie rock. I was obviously every guitarist pretty much loves um, Jimi Hendrix. So it was Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Keith Richards. But then when I sort of got into bands like the Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen, I mean, um, Will Sargent was was a massive massive influence on me. I, I think they were they were probably my my first musical love, my first musical crush. I was absolutely obsessed with how Will Sargent got those sounds and the, and the fact that he played guitar so differently to, you know, most, most rock guitars is, is based around, basically it's based, based around the blues. You know, you can look at Jimmy Page, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Keith Richards and it's it kind of, they're steeped in the blues, whereas Will Sargent seemed to be, I, I didn't know where it was coming from. It sounded more like, music from from the east you know it was yeah. um, a very different and and it was a lot more about creating 
atmospheres than it was just about playing melodies. And I, I think that really appealed to me. And so when it came to sort of writing your own compositions and, and songwriting, I mean, there was there a moment that you remember where you're thinking, actually, this is something I could, I could do. Well, I was, I was in a couple of bands before Catatonia. I was in a punk band called Utant, who were based in Cardiff, and we kind of all wrote together. And then I was in a band with my brother and some really good friends called Crumblowers, where we all wrote together. So there was no actual, you know, we, 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 we wrote more by writing riffs and by jamming together. The, the sitting down and actually writing a song from beginning to end, we write the chords, the melodies, um, and the lyrics that really didn't start until just before Catatonia, really. And and I got a, I, my my early attempts at doing it weren't very good. They were very disjointed. And I did that thing that a lot of um, young songwriters do, which is I wrote way too many bits, and they, they had way too many chords, and they were way too long. You know, when you when you listen to the greats, when you listen to Neil Young, when you listen to this reading when you listen to Bob Dylan you realize how simple most of the songs are that they're four chords and really good lyrics and and I think that's when it that's when it clicked really yeah I, I can assume my early, early attempts were, were pretty awful I mean if we could talk about Catatonia and the, the early days yeah. of the band you 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 joined kind of after the band was already sort of sort of well established in a way they'd kind of been playing or had some sort of uh, recordings yeah. down yeah. and so and you were you're in a band color 45 and and yeah but you, you you all knew each other so how did that transition into some sort of color 45 happen and when were you recruited and what was the story there i'd been in a couple of bands so i'd known mark and paul mark the guitarist in Catatonia and Paul, the bassist. But I'd known, I'd known Kellis since we were kids. She used to live down the road from me, literally a couple hundred yards. And we used to go to school together. So kind of everybody in that band knew each other. But you're right, I was actually the last person to join um, not long after. Um, the band had just finished recording uh, the first album, Way Beyond Blue, and I joined as Stephen Street and John Smith were mixing that album in Maison Rouge Studios in Fulham Road. Now it's funny actually because he, him and um, Stephen and John would be mixing uh, the, the album in the control room in Maison Rouge and we'd actually set up the full band and we'd be, record, we'd be re rehearsing in the live room for the gigs that we had booked. Which uh. is not, not the ideal way to mix an album with a band <laughs> like literally thrashing away at gig volume in in the next room but they were very patient with us and it was it was always funny because i mean i'd i'd literally gone from playing in a band with my brother and my best friends and mark and kellis had asked me oh you know do, do you want to come and join the band and and um i'd literally you know i i left cardiff with a guitar case with a couple of pairs of pants and t-shirts stuffed away in it and a pedal board in a rucksack next minute I was standing in Maison Rouge studio with Stephen Street poking his head around the door going oh sounds really good and it's like it, it was it, like like sort of um sort of like being fast tracked or sort of joining a Premier League football club when you you know been playing with Rackington Stanley not that that's a, a, a diss against band <laughs> but I was, you know, I've got to be very careful what I say because they are all my very very good friends so. <laughs> and one of them is my brother as well oh and wow he's, and he's bigger 
and harder than me. So, um, yeah. It must have been a, quite obviously a whirlwind then for you in terms of just the band was set, had their sights set on, uh, um, you know, bigger things. They were going places and obviously from there was turbulence there as well and there was there was chaos but was that really attractive as well as sort of um exciting well yeah because the the thing was the only thing i'd ever wanted to do since i was really young my dad took me to see thin lizzie when i was i think 13 in this fire gardens um in cardiff and and that just changed my life it was from then on that's all i wanted to do i wanted to be in a band and you know to actually be in a band that were releasing records for who were going to be releasing records and, you know, who had equipment and who had shows lined up. But it was, it was very special for me as well, because I, I already had a very close bond with, with Keris, with Mark and with Paul mm. and, and Aled, who was, who, who was the drummer, you know, I, I, I got on really, really well with him, like from day one. And, we, and it was very much, we were like the last gang in town. We did everything together. You know, we, we rehearsed together, we recorded together, we drank together, we had fights together, we, you know, painted the town red and it we really were like a, a, a gang, a proper gang at that time. You were used to having this kind of collective songwriting um, atmosphere or, or scenario and you were, that was definitely something that continued with, with Catatonia as well, wasn't it? You were welcome to, to write songs together. It, it was funny because it was never, it was never discussed when I joined, um, because Mark and Kellis were, were writing all the songs together. And, you know, the first album is, it's a really, it's a really strong album of, you know, pop tinged and then slightly darker things. And I didn't, at, at that point, I wasn't even thinking about the writing side of it. I kind of chipped in a few things to some of the B-sides that we did for that album. And then the first song that I wrote beginning to end and then played it to them was was Strange Glue, which was recorded then for um, for the second album, International Velvet. And I, I remember I'd, I'd written it sort of the early hours of the morning in a house that I was sharing with a bunch of other people in Cardiff. And I must have recorded it on a cassette player that I then put back in the guitar case because I'd completely forgotten about it the next morning and rewound it and played it. And I thought, oh, that, that's actually... Not bad, apart from the drunken bloke who's singing it. Which is me. <laughs> um, so I thought, I, I, I ran Keris and she lived just down the road from me. And I went over and played it to her and she really liked it. And she said, oh, well, you know, let's do it. And I remember thinking, oh, this, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to go down because there's definitely a songwriting partnership in this band already. I don't want to be, you know, trampling all over that. But... It was actually it was it was welcomed, which was which was nice because I'd I'd not anticipated being in that position in the band, you know. It it, it had never been discussed. So it, it was it was good and it showed it showed how, how open they were as people, how open every everybody in the band was to to having other things brought in. Cause cause a lot of bands, you know, they would have said, Oh, no way, you know, the songwriters, you know, like Mick and Keith and the Stones, it's like, no, they're the songwriters, and then you've got Ron Wood waiting, you know, 30 years to get <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's what he says anyway. With this massive no, portfolio. It like it, yeah, it wasn't like that at all. It was it was very um open, you know. 
And so this this gang that you you joined and and uh, were on this kind of the precipice of of something fantastic and you know almost domination in terms of like record sales and the second album did incredibly well. But we, I mean, there, there are lots of stories, and I remember at the time thinking, um, you know, there was not scandal, but just almost like kind of hedonism and stuff like that going on around the band. Was it as bad as that, or was it just just you feel that you were all just having an absolute ball of it, really? Yeah, it, it, it was as bad as that or as good as that. <laughs> we saw. No, the thing was, in, in, we, we all, you know, we, we'd all known each other from Cardiff where there was a fairly fairly energetic drinking and partying scene, to be, to be fair, <laughs> that mm. we were all very much fond of. And um, in that first year, 96, I joined at the end of 95, and in 96, we, we released five singles from Way Beyond Blue, and we toured all five of them. And we did festivals and did European festivals and a couple of support slots with Six Foot Dolls and I think it was Shed Seven as well. And we literally, we started that year, we started touring on the 3rd of January in Barron's Nightclub in Swansea, which was made famous um, as a scene in the film Twin Town with it. Ah, uh, yeah. And we finished on, I think it was the 22nd of December. And, you know, it was just non-stop. I mean, nearly damn near killed us. I mean, I remember getting home for Christmas. I, I think I just lay on the sofa for two weeks. I just couldn't do anything. Yeah. But um, the thing is, is it, it, it doesn't matter if you're young, old or in between. If, if somebody suddenly gives you a chance to do that, then, you know, that's what things were like at that time anyway. You know, after every single, after every single gig, there'd be an after show. After every single after show, somebody would drag you to a nightclub, would get you in for free. And then next thing you knew, it was it was time to do it all over again the next day. You know, the, you, you've got a bit of a constitution. Luckily, we were a lot younger than we are now. <laughs> yeah. With that, um, with that now, I think there'd be, um, I think we'd last about three days, to be honest with you. <laughs> You'd give it a good shot, uh, shot though, wouldn't I'd, you? <laughs> I'd give it a go, but only for three days. Yeah. <laughs> when when songs pop up like um, Road Rage and, and Mulder and Scully and things, which are now, I guess, you know, just classics, still feel dance floors or indie clubs and things now, don't they? And uh, I'll always remember them and love them, you know. But when they happen in like rehearsal studios and things, do you have a feeling about them straight away or is it something that that, that grows on you? Or... Oh, it's, it's difficult to tell because quite often, even songs as well known as those go through quite a few incarnations before they get to be in the released version. Um, for example, Muldron Scully, when it was, when we first put it together, it was much, much slower. Uh, and it was only when we came to do the album that we decided to do it a lot at, at the tempo that it is at now. So it, it kind of, it, it, it was a good song, but it lacked the excitement of the version that we eventually released. Mm. Uh, Road Rage was different because Mark and Kelly had started writing Road Rage at a piano. And Mark came in one day into a rehearsal room. She used to rehearse by Welsh National Opera in Cardiff under a railway bridge in this little rehearsal studio and he literally played road rage beginning to end verses choruses middle eight outro of the lot i remember thinking straight away then that's that's gonna be really good and it was like come on let us at it let us let's work it and 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 you know do the best we can for it. i knew straight away that was a good song and the kudos that came with it obviously obviously those those feelings about it you know potentially going to do well come when you get 
you know, nominations for what was you know, the, the Brit Awards and Ivan Novello and the Q Awards and things. And um, could you quite believe it or was it, was it something do you feel like you deserved? Well, the thing was, going back to what I said about touring Way Beyond Blue, where we, we you know, we literally did 230, 240 gigs in a year. And at the end of the year, we'd sold 18,000 copies of that album. And we used to joke that it would have been cheaper to have hired a helicopter and just gone off and dropped a copy to everybody. But when we were making, <laughs> when we were making um, International Velvet, because of the, I mean, you say 18,000 albums now, it sounds like quite a lot. I mean, you can get a number one album with 6,000 sales now. So 18,000 a year isn't that bad. But when you're signed to a huge American record label, it's, it's well below expectation. So we went off to make International Velvet um, and we're just left, left to our own devices. Nobody from the record company came down. Nobody from the management came down. We just went down to Mono Valley Studios and, and we just cracked on with it. And all the way through, I just remember thinking, oh, this is amazing. This album's going to be huge. And then right at the end, I had this massive panic. And we were right to have that panic because we sent it to the record label and they were like, what's this? What is, you know, what, what's this all about? You know, you're meant to be some, like, some indie band. What's all this? What's mm. all this? Yeah. And it was like, it was a massive, like, oh, my God, you know, have, have, have we blown it sort of thing? And then... A couple of weeks later, they got back to us and they were like, oh, no, 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 we love it. We love it. And you're never quite sure what's gone on in that intervening period. But we were all really, you know, really proud of that record and and proud of the work that we put in. You know, we worked really hard on not just the, the songwriting, but arranging the songs, you know, editing bits in, editing bits out, you know, of it. this bit could be better. There was a lot, there was a lot of, it, it wasn't just write 12 songs and go in and out. And do an album you know we wrote 22 songs and we went in and we picked the best of the best and we worked really really hard at you know editing arranging like oh there's a really good hook there we should do that more often it was very it wasn't just walk in and bang them out there was you know a lot of that kind of pre-production and you know honing honing the songs to to make them hit home if you see what i mean but then did you put yourself under a bit more uh, pressure then with the like following albums that after International Velvet, yeah, that's the thing. Is is if if International Velvet was a, was a surprise, and it was it was a lovely surprise, and you know it 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 went to number one in the UK and and produced I don't know how many hit singles, but in the same way as we'd felt no pressure at all making that record because of the lack, the, the relative lack of success of the first album, you suddenly realize that there's an awful lot more pressure when you come to the third you know sort of you get asked to go for you know marketing meetings with people at the record company and then it's like hang on nobody's ever asked us to go one of these before what what do you think we have got to contribute to a marketing meeting hmm. you know, it you know it, it was it was a strange thing and it's, it's always it, it, i think any band will tell you this it is hard to follow up a um a really successful album, especially one as early as relatively early on in in your career. It's funny because um, Tidal, you know, the uh, streaming service, yeah, have just um, got hold of the MQAs, the Master Quality Audios for the Four Warners albums, and I've been really pleasantly surprised 
listening back to them, uh, you know, because it's the first time I've listened to, you know, Equally Cursed and Blessed since probably it came out. I've never gone back and listened to it again. And I was really surprised by how good it was. But there was a definite feeling from from the record company of, oh, it's not quite, you know, where's the molten scully, where's the road rage? Because, of course, we gave them Dead from the Waist Down, which was sort of this big sort of orchestral sweeping lament, if you like. And they were like, you know, we could do with some, you know, some indie bangers, please. <laughs> Except that people didn't used to say indie bangers. It's <laughs> tasty. That's a, a recent... I thought I'd use that term just to show that I... <laughs> still down with the kids. I still, oh, I'm definitely not down. I'm not even... <laughs> Not even down with my kids for heaven's sake but no it was a bit of um it was a bit of a change it was a much more reflective album and and, and that's the thing is is you're always aware that when you f you fill an album with sort of mid-paced songs that however well they're crafted and however much work you put into you know the lyrics and and the arrangements and that is is that if you've established your name as oh you know the band who do Molten Scully the band who do Road Rage that if you suddenly, you know, deliver a, a, an album of fairly mid-tempo songs, that there are some people who are going to be disappointed. When Catatonia did sort of come to an end, and obviously it was, wasn't as, I would say it wasn't as split as such, but it was just kind of like a, a shelving almost, wasn't it, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> That's a polite way of putting it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you? How were you feeling? I, I know, it, obviously, when any band sort of stops and you've got a, quite a lot of expe uh, um, success, that it could be quite mm. difficult. But were you, were you expecting it, or were you, were you? How were you feeling about it? Well, the thing was, we'd we'd not long finished an album, and we released a single on the Monday, Stone by Stone, and then the album Paper Scissors Stone was going to follow on. The following Monday, and I, I got a phone call from the Western Western Mail, which is the national newspaper in Wales, and they said, "Doc, can we have a quote about uh, the band splitting up?" And I said, "Sorry, I don't know what you're talking about." Uh. And I phoned the management, and they they said, "Oh yeah, Warners have just released a um, a statement," and I remember thinking, "Oh, okay, that's it." But um, a couple of days later, um, the Twin Towers September the 11th happened, so it it, it sort of it kind of, you know, there are more important things to worry about. It sort of cleared the decks, really, and, and yeah, just kind of got on with it, really. I mean, you know, it was, I, I think with any band, you can sort of see, you know, there was a time and a place for it. You know, the Sex Pistols only made one album. I mean, there was yeah. plenty of was released afterwards, but that one album did the job, and I still listen to that album at least once a month. And I don't think to myself, oh, it's a shame they didn't do more albums, you know. Um, there's a time and place with, with bands and artists and music, and sometimes that course runs very quickly, and it's all condensed and compressed, and sometimes it, it, it can last for years. Like, in the, you know, you compare the Beatles and the Stones, you know, Beatles are only together for six years, or the recording career was six years, and then, you know, the Stones had... You know, still going. Yeah, there's a time and a place, and and I I felt yeah that it it's run its course now, and um, and you know I was I, I accepted that, but it I was sad about it because you know you you look back on any on any band, and you can always say oh you know the, I, I'm sure you've heard this from countless contributors to this podcast, 
who, you know, they will describe it as the best of times and the worst of times, that the good times are great and the bad times can be really horrible. But that's part of what gives it that, you know, that sort of precious time and, 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 and that, and, and you, you look back, I can look back on it now and, and say, yeah, there was a reason why those bad things happened and there's a reason why the good things happened. It's all part of, the, you know, the balance of being in a bad, it's like a family or a marriage. And you've taken, I guess, that, that element of songwriting and, and the musical career that you were kind of developing within Catatonia and then you took it to a completely different place, would you say? I mean, you had the, um, you had experience on, with sort of broadcasting and uh, on on television as well with with the with the well factor, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean obviously and also just you know moving into different territories. Uh, there was and obviously the, the, the supergroup, if you don't mind me calling it, the, the stand. Um, oh, right. yeah. how, I mean, how what were you kind of thinking at that kind of point? Were you thinking? where musically you want where were you going to fit or did you just know that you wanted to go in a sort of songwriting and composing direction well the thing is for for the first year after the band split i didn't really do anything because um i had a son who had been born the year before while we'd been making the album and i'd been away for more or less a year and just hadn't had a chance to be at home so for the first year i didn't really do anything i just knocked around the house and then i got a phone call um, asking me, did I want to contribute to a TV programme, which turned out to be Wow Factor, which for people who don't know was like a Welsh um, version of pop stars or what do you call it? Um, X pop Factor. Idol. Oh, pop yeah. idol, yeah, yeah. yeah some, something like that. And from there, I then got asked to produce a few music um, TV programmes. So bizarrely, I end up working as like a freelance TV producer, having absolutely no idea of what I was doing, literally not a clue. I would turn up for work and just march around the office on my phone, shouting at people because I didn't know what else to do. And then eventually I think they realized that I didn't know what I was doing. And I sort of got shifted sideways into doing music for things. And I scored a couple of films, um, but, but never really felt that at home in that world, really, because I, I know you, you, you've probably interviewed people yourselves who go, oh, God, I, you know, I'd love to score a film in that. But it's like, you know, you know, be careful what you wish for. Is what I, would say. <laughs> I, I love doing it. It's really challenging, but it takes such a chunk of time to do. And especially when you're doing it on your own or with one other person, you know, it's it, and, and the, the expectations of film productions is that, you know, you are available pretty much 24-7 to answer the questions of editors, producers, directors, people funding the film, commissioning editors. And, and it wasn't a way that I particularly liked working. I liked just getting on with it and then presenting somebody with the finish, you know, ta-da, there it is. Uh, yeah. And I'm afraid that film and drama composition don't work like that. You've kind of got about eight people looking over your shoulder all the time. And yeah, you have to devote huge chunks of time, like months at a time to a project where you haven't got time to do anything else. And I just didn't, I, I, I didn't really, I didn't really warm to that way of doing things. I mean, there's, there's another point of view, which just tells you that um, I just don't like people telling me what to do musically, which, and, and that was a big surprise to me when you make, you know, I, I just always assumed that 
the person who was scoring a film would just be allowed to do whatever they wanted. But it's very, very far from the truth. In fact, you've usually got at least four people telling you different ideas of, of what they want from the same scene. And I kind of, I, I got a bit tired of doing it after one or two. I had um, uh, Richard Parfit on the show uh, in oh, yeah. last season and, and, and realised... Parfit, the best, the best guitarist I've ever been in a room with. Oh. He really is fantastic. He's... He's a great musician. He's a um, very, very good friend of mine as well. Yeah, since um, 95, 96. Yeah, wonderful fella. Well, I hadn't realised the connection that you both have, obviously, friends and, and musicians together, but with the Duffy uh, story yeah. as well, because he spoke a bit about that um, yeah. when, we, when we talked about it. But um, what was your involvement there, if you don't mind me asking? I was I was coming out of dentists in Cardiff. I just had like three teeth out or something, <laughs> and I, I, I literally I'd had so many injections of anaesthetic I couldn't move my face, let alone talk. And he stopped me. And he's he's so angry. I was, oh yeah, come on, you go get get together, write some songs, write some songs, man, write some songs. I was going, Richard, I'm pointing at my mouth, going, oh, oh, oh. Anyway, so we did indeed get together and write some songs, and we wrote four or five songs. And then we thought, well, we should look for somebody to sing them. And I think we spoke to a few people. We, we, we just weren't getting anywhere. The first person we wanted to do it was Gwenna Saunders, who at the time was in the Pipettes. And um, we were told by her manager that uh, he'd break our legs if we approached her, because obviously he had a successful band on his uh, <laughs> On his books, he, he, well, he, he, Andy Barding, his name is, and he, you know, he's a good friend of Parfit and mine. So he was only joking when he said, "Oh, I assume <laughs> you never really know with band managers." Um, and, and we were just kept on drawing blanks, and, and eventually, in desperation, I said, "Well, there was this girl on the last series of Wow Factor who was amazing, but and I'm not sure if it's going to suit." And he was like, "Oh no, I'm not touching anything, anybody, and anything to do with." TV talent shows. And I said, well, you know, let's have a look. So I, I went to the TV company and they gave me a DVD and he was like, right, you should just, just a complete 180. He said, right, let's drive up to North Wales and see you now. I was like, hang on a minute, Rich. A minute ago, you weren't touching anything that was in a... And, and that's how it happened. We drove up there. We literally took... We, we took two guitars with, her, with us, played her a couple of songs, and she said, yeah. And we started recording and... We played the stuff to Rough Trade Records, to Jeanette Lee and to Jeff Travis. And Jeanette signed her up, um, signed her to Rough Trade Management and put her to work with Bernard Butler. So, yeah, we, we kind of, I suppose we brought her to the attention of Jeff and Jeanette at Rough Trade. But I, I, I'll be quite honest, which is that I couldn't have... I couldn't have taken that project in the direction which Jeanette did because that's what Jeanette does is she sees, you know, the, the, the big picture of things and sees how, how artists should be presented and how they should look, how they should sign. You know, she's made a career doing that. And that was something that, that was, you know, was so, so far outside what I wanted to do that I was glad she did it, you know. Your solo project that you're, you're doing at the moment, the Don Ya Yarn, yeah, I mean, it's why? Great. That's a good question. <laughs> no, I'm you know trying to. She goes, Owen, this Don Yaya project you do it. <laughs> why? <laughs> oh, 
I'm trying. Is that what it is? Is that what it was just saying? It, it, it sounds, I mean, the one I've heard online is right up my street and i was i was oh, like good. this is i mean in terms of just the the layering and um the musicality of it and just the it's not i wouldn't say whimsical but there's the vocal the vocal on it is just quite sublime it's lovely and i was thinking well you know you've obviously had to take a transition then from being you know songwriter um you know as you say, like a, a sidekick, if as you say, uh, to somebody yeah, else who's going to sing, making that transition. And Jim McCulloch was talking to me as well recently about doing the same thing for his solo album from from Soup Dragons about you know yeah. finding his voice, actually singing it, and having the confidence to sing, and actually thinking, ah, this isn't actually that bad. I can actually do this. And and did you have <laughs> did you have a similar moment with you? Because it sounds to me like you've been. It sounds to me that you've been singing like this. All, all your life you wouldn't think this is something that's potentially new to you um well i i my mum always used to say that there are people who can hold a tune and there are people who can sing i'm de definitely in the hold a tune section and i'd always sung on demos and you know did backing vocals and all the rest of it but literally the only I go, why do i keep on saying literally i thought i got out of that habit never mind um i'll edit only, it out <laughs> yeah, no no leave it in for comedy value <laughs> Um, it's, it literally is something people used to say in the 90s. It's literally this. It's literally oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've I'm saying that. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was kind of forced upon me. I, I had a couple of songs that um, I would normally have gone looking for somebody to demo or for somebody to sing. And of course, because of because of lockdown. It's you can record vocals online, but it's very, very difficult. It's it, it's it's not you know it's something that you need to be in a room with somebody to be able to do. So I thought, right, I'm going to take the ball by the horns and give it a go myself. And like most people who aren't experienced, you know, lead singers, front people of bands, it it takes a while to get over the sound of your own voice i'm sure i'm sure jim would say exactly the same thing because he's in a similar position being you know a sideman to people for most you know he was in he was in superstar as well wasn't he jim yep 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 he was yeah so he'd have been you know um playing guitar in the super dragons in, in superstar so people don't know what his voice sounds like and don't know if he can sing or not and it is a bit of a leap of faith uh, and and it, I'm sure Jim will find the same thing, and I'm sure lots and lots of other people in in our position have found the same thing, which is it's a bit of a leap of faith. It takes a bit of getting used to, and then eventually, after a bit of this and a bit of that, you get to a point where you go, actually, that sounds all right. That sounds like a record, you know. You know, I'm 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 not trying to be the best singer in the world, but it sounds like a record, so that makes me happy. Mm. It's kind of got almost like a, a Beach Boysy feel to it, and you know, I was expecting to go, yeah, that's what I was after. But <laughs> oh, well, no, I, I, I've had a few people say um, that it, it sounds kind of John Lennon-ish, which is good. And yeah, again, yeah. that's that's somebody who was who really didn't like the, the sound of his own voice either, and would constantly ask George Martin to smother it in reverb and slapback delay and double tracks and stuff, all of which are the tricks that I use to get over the fact that I can't stand the sound of my own voice. It's funny, you, you just, what you do is you find, oh, let me find somebody else who really didn't like the sound of their own voice. Ah, oh, John Lennon, yeah, I'll use all the tricks he did and it'll, um, it'll all 
it'll all turn out all right in the end. With this, the recording of it then, was this, was this recorded pre-pandemic or is this done during as no, well? I, 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 yeah, did it during, yeah. It's, it, I, I can actually, I, I could, if we were on video, I could actually show you what is laughingly referred to as my studio. It's literally a room. If I sit down on a chair in the room, I can touch all four walls of the room. It's just about big enough to get a computer, an interface, a pair of studio monitors, and a small key, keyboard in. And if I, if, if I then have to play guitar, I have to open the door then and sit half <laughs> in the room. But I like it, you know, because um, I, I was doing, I, I did a feature again for the Western Mail, the, the National Newspaper of Wales, and they, they sent a photographer over. And, and the first thing the photographer said was, um, can we take some photos in, in the studio? And I thought, oh, it's going to be interesting. So the photographer came into the house and I opened the door to the tiny room. <laughs> the look on the face, it was just like, this crashing disappointment of like, oh, I, I, you know, I was expecting a recording studio, not like a room with a kid's, a child's desk, a stool and some speakers and some records in it. You know, she was, she looked pretty crushed and, so, and, and bless her, she, she was so polite. She took a few photos in there and went, right, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> she was just thinking, oh, I'll take a few photos so he's not offended, but these aren't going to make the magazine, obviously, because it looks nothing like a recording studio. So you've got the, the two singles, Pale Moon and It's You. Are they, yeah. uh, and, and the album, when's the album due? Well, it, I, I've been asked if I, I'm, I'm trying to build towards doing an album. I've got another single ready to come out, but I haven't had a chance to do a video for it yet, because I, I shoot the videos on my phone. Because I am literally a one-man band. I record it all, and I engineer it, and mix it, and master it. And then I do the same with the videos. So the first video, the video for It's You, mm. um, I shot when uh, my wife and I were on holiday um, in our camper van. And I don't think she realised that I was going to spend the holiday filming a video. And she hadn't, she hadn't been on holiday for, like, over a year. It was like, yeah, yeah, we're going on holiday. It's going to be great. We're going to have you know, all this time to relax. And I'm going to be able to shoot a video. And she said, you what? I said, well, I'm going to try and shoot a video while we're on a holiday. And yeah, I, I had one of those looks. But it was a very easy video to make. I just did lots of very, very random shots of stuff that I saw on holiday, made it look as old fashioned as I could, and then cut it all together. And, and that was the video. So that's the way I make videos. But I've, I've got another single ready to go. And called Kiss Kiss Goodbye, which uh -huh. sounds kind of like Bondy, doesn't it? But it's not Bondy at all, um, or Bond-like. Uh, <laughs> so as soon as I've done a video for it, when I can raise my lazy butt to do the video, I will put out the next single. But I think, I think the album's a much more long-term um, project. What I'd like to do before then is, is do four singles as a sort of like a 12-inch EP going back to the, you know, the, the, the classic EPs of the 90s where you'd get two tracks on one side and two tracks on another because so far I've not been able to do physical releases of these. Yeah. And obviously being a, a you know, an indie kid from the 90s, is I, I would love to, I'd love to do that. I'd love to go back to, you know, a nice, nice sleeve. Yeah. 
most proper 12 inch, make it sound good, make it look good, you know. So I think the albums, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in the, the Mark Roberts turning out four albums in two years. Not, <laughs> not capable of that. So do you think you'd ever play live uh, this, your, your, this, this sort of material live or this, this project live with a band? Oh, I don't know. The thing is, I've not had to worry about that. And, and nobody's even asked because obviously started it during lockdown when you couldn't do gigs. And then the singles have been released during lockdown where you can't do gigs. Just, it's kind of been a perfect project for a one man band because there's no pressure to go out and play it. Mm. Um, it would be it'd be quite tricky to do it live. I'd have to get I'd have to get a few people in, um, or do it as a karaoke show, maybe. <laughs> yeah, just literally walk on stage, plonk a CD in a uh, in a CD DJ booth, and just stand there singing the songs. I kind of like the idea of of doing it really cheeky, cheekily, s- sillily, cheaply. Yeah. <laughs> you know? really, really cheesy and crass i that's the thing I, I i i live in a world where i have to make the records and the videos but what i'd like to do is to live in a world where i can invite six musicians to join me and record in recording studios but you know well owen i'll let you go uh, off into the, the dark night in wales um <laughs> That, that was very Dylan Thomas-esque, that was. <laughs> do, not, do not go into the dark night, something like that. I was never very good at poetry in school, I'm afraid. Uh, me neither. Um, I, I was been, it's been great catching up with what you've been doing, and like I say, I, I really have enjoyed listening to Don Yaya and the stuff. Uh, it's oh, it's right up so my much. street. Um, oh, thanks very much. That means a lot to me. Thanks very much, Chris. And thanks for talking about Catatonia and everything else as well. Oh, it's it's been, been brilliant. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Trip down memory lane and, you know, all the best for the podcast. You've had some, you've had some great people on and now you've had me on, which is a huge <laughs> letdown. But I go back and they can listen to all, all the good guests that you've had. And, you know, uh, hopefully I haven't ruined your successful award-winning podcast. <laughs> and you'll be back next week. Oh, let's hope so. This temporary blip will forgotten. thanks very much Chris bye 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 I had so much fun recording that interview with Owen it was fantastic please check out the solo recordings Don Yaya as I said at the beginning of the interview I've put all the links in the show notes to that Um, it's really great stuff so here are all the ways that you can support the podcast and this bit's boring isn't it sorry I keep doing this every week anyway yes I'm on social media, so you can follow me there on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you want to support the podcast financially, you can as well. So there's like a donation page that I have set up, and that link is in the show notes. You can buy me a virtual coffee. And finally, the third thing that you can do that really helps is to leave a review and rate the podcast on whatever device you're listening to it on. It really helps. Well, that's it for another episode. It's been an absolute blast so far this season. I hope you're really enjoying it. I'll be back next week, all being well with another one. So until then, see you soon. Mm